Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey folks, Kaiser here. We've got a new initiative at SupChina that I want to tell you about because I suspect many of our listeners are just the sort of people we want to get involved. And it's a chance for you China nerds to parlay your arcane knowledge into a little income. We've launched a consulting and expertise marketplace called SupChina Direct. The goal is to connect the best China-focused talent with the companies and organizations who need support for their China-related projects and initiatives. Think of us as the Airbnb of highly qualified, deeply experienced China professionals. We've already built out a pretty decent network, a couple of hundred independent consultants and boutique consulting firms. We're really looking for people who know healthcare, consumer and retail, macroeconomics, and, of course, technology. And if your business is looking for experts in those or pretty much any other fields, for anything from market entry to due diligence to digital marketing to supply chain sourcing, just get in touch. So whether you're a subject area specialist who wants to pitch new clients or if you're looking for just the right specialist yourself, go to www.subchina.direct and sign up today. Now, on with the show. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. SupChina is simply the best way there is to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China. Our indispensable daily newsletter features a roundup of the news from hundreds of different sources, plus links to the original writing on our own website. Sign up for SupChina Access, and you get all that and much more with stories and everything from the Belt and Road to local entrepreneurship and innovation in China, from the travails of ethnically Chinese researchers in the U.S. in this age of creeping McCarthyism, to China's ongoing extra-legal internment of hundreds of thousands, or by some estimates well over a million Uyghurs and other Muslims in China's Xinjiang region. We are sure you'll agree that it's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I am coming to you today from Washington, D.C. Joining me from behind the thickets and brambles of an increasingly ridiculous beard is SupChina's editor-in-chief, Jin <laughs> no. Yumi, known in the as-yet-uncinicized world as Jeremy Goldcorn. Jeremy, say hello to our listening audience, won't you, if they can hear you. What? Listening audience? <laughs> Isn't an audience by definition listening? And going after my beard is a low blow, Kaiser. But hello, <laughs> or listening audience. Or vomiting audience, or whatever you're doing. So on July 3rd, the Washington Post published an open letter signed at the time of publication by about 100 prominent people in policy and academic world, in, uh, in, in business and defense 
Uh, the letter was authored by people I greatly admire, Taylor Fravel of MIT, who was on this show quite recently, talking about his book on China's military strategy, uh, by the eminent Ezra Vogel, who authored the magisterial tome on Deng Xiaoping, uh, former ambassador and eminent screech of China policy circles, Stapleton Roy, and Susan Thornton, who's also been on Seneca, and who was, of course, the acting assistant secretary of state for East Asia Pacific Affairs until... Uh, not too long ago. But the main driving force, if I'm not mistaken, was Michael D. Swain, who is a prominent analyst of Chinese security studies, uh, and he's now a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Michael is a senior policy analyst at the RAND Corporation and has many years of experience in Chinese defense and foreign policy and uh, the numerous publications to show for it. We are delighted that Michael could join us as our guest this week on Seneca. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kaiser. So full disclosure, before we get started, I am a signatory on the letter, uh, not one of the names printed in the Washington Post, but I have since signed it. And also full disclosure, Jeremy, you did not sign the letter, did you? And you've got a couple issues with it as that you're going to want to raise as our discussion proceeds. Sure. Anyway, Michael, great that you could join. Let's, let's start with this. So the hawkishness uh, that we have in D.C., it's been discernible for quite some time, right? Um, what, what explains why... Only now, in the middle of 2019, did you decide that it was time to organize such an effort? Well, I think that even though the there has been some elements of what you would call hawkishness in U.S. policy for some time, and these in some ways perhaps even extend back to the Obama administration, I think it's the case that most people with whom I have engaged on, on this issue have believed that under the Trump administration, this policy approach has become really extreme. Um, it's not just sort of simply hawkish in a kind of generic way. It has become really kind of categorically uh, opposed to almost everything China does. It's uh, really verging on what I would call demonization. And uh, you've seen that reflected in some of the policy documents that have come out of the Trump administration. Um, I think it's what I usually say in describing it is it's an extreme version of the kind of bipartisan shift that we have seen in regarding China um, over the last several years, which has been towards uh, that of seeing China more as a rival and a competitor than as a potential partner in some ways. And the Trump administration, I think, has just taken that to a very extreme end, barely ever mentioning the idea that there may be issues with which we can cooperate with the Chinese or work with them. It's all sort of this one-note drumbeat of, of negative behavior about what the Chinese are doing, saying, thinking, their policies, etc. Right, right, right. I would certainly agree with it that, that it has taken a more extreme turn during this time. Uh, but if you look, look back at that period, uh, the Obama administration, I mean, I think a lot of people would, would date the downturn really to 2008, 2009, to the immediate, you know, the early days of the financial crisis, uh, the immediate post-Olympic period, uh, where you started to see uh, more assertive behavior by China and sort of uh, a responsive behavior by the United States in, in like phone ops and things like that. A few years later, you already have uh, the pivot or the rebalancing, uh, which is, you know, seen by everyone in China, everyone I've ever talked to, certainly, as at least some species of containment. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, it, it certainly was there before, but you don't think that it, it sort of merited an, an organized effort to, to steer back on, on course, as it were? Well, no. At that time, I think 
I mean, I had my complaints about the Obama policy in various ways. I wasn't a big fan of the idea of the pivot, particularly what it was called. Um, but I didn't see the kind of one-dimensional extreme approach to interpreting what China is and what it's doing in the world today yeah. that you see under Trump. I mean, Certainly it's just not. a big contrast. So, Trump would never have said what Obama said, that you know, a, a strong, stable, and prosperous China is good for the United States. Right, right, right. right. The idea it. of a constructive uh, partnership, as it was often described, or much less the idea that Jim Steinberg had during the Trump uh, Obama administration that we need to have strategic reassurance in in both directions. I mean, the idea of reassurance or mutual accommodation is completely you know alien to the Trump administration. Exactly, Michael. Can you tell us a bit about the who and the why of the latter? Who were the principal authors of the first draft, and maybe a little bit about the background? Uh, not so much the the principal authors, but the signatories uh, in terms of academic, diplomatic, business, military, or other experience. Is it predominantly academics and policy wonks behind it? Well, I wouldn't say it's. Um Academic. Well, if you mean by policy wonks, if you mean former officials, then yes, form, <laughs> former officials were were involved in in developing and certainly signing this letter. I mean, it began really as part of a conversation online among a group of us who are involved in China issues, particularly China foreign policy, security related issues. And there's been a lot of back and forth over the years and since the Trump administration came into office about their policies. And so, you know, I have at various times sort of posted things saying, you know, people need to say something about this. People need to really speak up more. Because when you're sitting here in Washington, you really get the impression there's just this deluge of constant 24-7, you know, let's get China uh, stuff that goes on and on and on. And there's just like very little that's written out there that really tries to put things in something like a database perspective. And so I, I said, you know, we let's try and do something like this. Maybe we can get some kind of statement together. And so I drafted a statement originally, and it was much longer than what it is now, of course, and too detailed. I tend to write too much. And then I submitted it to a group of people that was beyond the five people who had their signatures on the letter. It was about 20 people I see. Bas- basically online and a variety of different people, including scholars, policy analysts at think tanks, former officials, a uh, few business people, that sort of thing. And then it just sort of developed from there. We revised it many, many times up and down. It went down at one time to about like one or two sentences for each of the propositions. And then it sort of grew a little bit. And then we decided we more or less could all live with it. I mean, nobody was 100%, yeah, I agree with every single word. But they believed in the basic thrust of the document, which was to call attention to what we thought were some very, you know, counterproductive by being too extreme policies of the Trump administration. And it's not just the Trump administration. I mean, it's kind of like the mindset that's the blob. Yeah, that's that's very dominant in Washington now. I mean, it wasn't really a specific attack on the Trump administration per se, although they certainly are in many ways illustrating this. But it was an attack really on that frame of mind. And Michael, um, why was it published? Uh, I mean, uh, to whom exactly was it aimed and what do you hope the results will be? Well, I think it was published because the Washington Post saw it as newsworthy. I mean, they they recognize that there's been very little of this kind of statement coming out of Washington and other places and certainly very nothing like this, an open letter signed by 100 people. I mean, it clearly showed that there is no dominant consensus among the you know serious policy community, not just China watchers. There are people who signed this letter who were not China watchers per se. They were right. foreign policy people, business people. 
So it wasn't just China watchers. But the main point of the letter was to, really to convey, as it said at the very end of of the letter, to convey the point that there is no single dominant hardline consensus about China in Washington uh, and among sort of the foreign policy community. And I think that was shown very clearly by the fact that you've got this letter that's now over 160 signatories that uh, from people in, in different walks who are serious uh interested in China, foreign, foreign affairs, business with China, etc. There were some surprising names, actually, uh, as I was perusing it the other day. Some people who I, I never would have thought would have signed on to such a thing, but I'm very glad to see that they did. Let's, let's, let's talk specifically about some of the content of the letter. I, I fully understand the need that a lot of us who are concerned about this sort of get tougher on China line, uh, I understand the need for us to kind of give a full litany of criticisms of Beijing before we make our case. I think a cynic might allege that we're doing that just to inoculate ourselves against the criticism, that we're naive, that we don't have our eyes open, that we're romanticizing China in some way. Uh, But I've certainly done a lot of that kind of caveating myself. And I kind of reflexively include it in in any talk that I give now uh, on recent U.S. policy. Jeremy, uh, you've made it pretty clear that, that you don't think this litany was complete enough or maybe harsh enough and that it didn't mention a few issues in particular. Do you want to address that now? Uh, What issues do you think should have been included? And then, Michael, perhaps you can talk about the decision to include what you did and to not include what you didn't. Okay, well, um, yeah, you know, I I don't think there's a need to insert a litany for reasons of appearance or defend off criticism. And I I believe uh, there are quite a few uh, of the signatories are people who are known in recent years for their criticism of China. Uh, I don't think there's any need to prove that. Um, my own point of view, and I don't know how widely this is shared, is that I think when you publish a letter titled China is Not an Enemy in the Washington Post, you know that while it might be ignored by the blob in D.C., it's going to be lapped up uh, by eager eyes in Beijing and subsequently used for propaganda, which in fact did happen. Um, so I, I think putting such a letter together, there was a remarkable opportunity to focus some attention in Zhongnanhai on some of the more egregious abuses the party is currently perpetrating, uh, especially because both are happening with little resistance from the international community. And the two that come to my mind first, and maybe there are, there are others that should be on this list, but, you know, the concentration camps in Xinjiang. Um, and the other one of concern, and I think would be a natural fit in this letter, is Michael Kovrig and Michael Spavor, the two detained Canadians, detained in revenge for the arrest of the Huawei CFO and now subject to petty torture, like having their eyeglasses confiscated. Um, these two people, or any one of the signatories of the letter, could have found themselves in such a situation. And uh, the two are being abandoned by their government. So for me, there was just this lost opportunity to actually... Uh, focus Beijing's attention and global attention on some issues that matter. I don't think it was a litany. So that's my little rant about that subject. <laughs> <laughs> Michael? Well, I mean, I think they're, they're fair points. You can, you can argue about you know, how explicit we should have been, how strong our language should have been in, in addressing what the Chinese are doing. I don't think there was any intent or desire to kind of like throw a softball at the Chinese by by describing their behavior the way we did in the letter. Um, there was a lot of back and forth about different ways of phrasing this. Um, I think, I mean, I can't really speak for my co-signers, but my, my perspective is that I think we were trying to sort of cast the orbit uh, a little bit wider, trying to sort of address the sort of broader kind of generic problems 
that we have, and we mentioned the idea of domestic repression uh, in the letter, and I know that sounds weak to a lot of people. We should have been more explicit and listed this, 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 and this. Or at least maybe the word ethnic, domestic ethnic repression. Yeah, mean, right. Uh, so it would have been clear that you're referring right, to Right, we probably should have said that. In fact, I thought we had written that in there. I would probably have said we should have written that in there, but <laughs> it ended up not getting in there. And I don't think it was because anybody said, hey, we don't want to mention Xinjiang. I mean, I can't recall anybody saying that. So, you know, it was a, it was a question of, of how do you best characterize what you think to be the, the worst or most egregious kind of ac- areas where China is causing problems for the United States and others, while at the same time keeping the focus on what the letter is. I mean, the focus of the letter was U.S. policy towards China. And the basic point was the Chinese are doing a lot of bad things that are contributing to this downward spiral, but the Trump administration is doing a lot of things that are really making it worse, not better. And and it was that kind of point in trying to push back against what I said before, which is this apparent consensus that everybody has agreed what, what China is and how do we deal with it. That was the f- primary point of the letter. I, I would add something to that. I would say that uh, we have to remember that when you are basically, as this letter does, arguing the case for engagement, just remember we don't talk about a strategy of engagement with our allies or with countries that share our values and and our our behavioral norms. We don't talk about engagement with Japan, engagement with South Korea, engagement with with Canada or the UK. We use that word specifically when it is a regime that we have serious issues with, where we we think that uh, there's a huge values chasm and that a bridge needs to be built out. So I, I, I get it. But there was another line of criticism that I thought was really kind of interesting. I, I heard from one individual. He asked me that not, not, not to use his name. Um, he actually declined to sign the letter in large part because the criticisms on the list, uh, specifically economic ones, he thought had gone too far, that it, it, it should have included language about the WTO co- commitments that China did honor. In, in his words, and this is him, this is why they are our largest agricultural market and why GM and Boeing sell more cars and planes there than in the U.S. So he acknowledges that that China hasn't done everything they, they agreed to do in 2001 uh, and that we do need to press on, on some of these issues where market access has not been given. Uh, but he also adds that if we, acknowledge, if we don't acknowledge that they've done a lot, we really give up the opportunity to argue that engagement has worked and uh, for, for the U.S. and for most Chinese citizens. He also has a quibble with the line about the party exerting new control over private firms, which he describes as a popular notion that, as far as he can tell, isn't accurate. So what do you make of, of, of that criticism? I know you're fending stuff off from, from both sides. but Well, it's, it's interesting. I mean, there was somebody who, who did sign the letter who uh, said to me that he was going to sign the letter, but he emphatically thought we should have put in more information to show how U.S.-China trade relations has benefited the American public. Yeah, and I would like to see that too. Yeah, I mean, you know, th- there's really a question here of how much you can get in and how much you want to really fit into a document like this. I sort of think that the point two, which is begins with we do not believe Beijing is an economic enemy or an existential national security threat in every, in every way, that that was in part intended to try to get at that point, that, mm-hmm. that we're not dealing with a simple categorically, you know, a predatory economic entity, as the White House tends to describe it. Um, yes, there are things that the Chinese are doing economically that we don't like and which are not in line with WTO commitments. 
and which you know a lot of businessmen are complaining about, which they haven't in the past. And those are valid things, and those are things absolutely. Yeah, those are things that need to be addressed, and the Chinese should recognize this, and there needs to be an effective way of dealing with these. But the sledgehammer approach of the White House and their sort of categorical denial that there's anything positive in U.S.-China economic relations. I mean, even there seems to be even an effort out of some in the White House to decouple the Chinese economy from the U.S. economy, break up the supply chains, oh, very get, much, get American yeah. companies to get out of China and other foreign companies as well. I mean, it's ridiculous. I mean, I don't know a single serious economist who thinks that this is either A, feasible, or B, would be useful for the United States or for other economies. But of course, it's based upon this one-dimensional, categorical, you know, hair-on-fire notion <laughs> that the Chinese are this predatory economic entity that's out to screw everybody except themselves, which is a cartoon. I mean, it's just a fundamentally cartoonish depiction of what China is. Michael, let's talk about another line of criticism, perhaps best articulated in an op-ed written by John Pomford in response to the latter. Um, if I may summarize brutally and you know, without any nuance, the argument um, is that your letter assumes too much influence on the part of the United States and somehow deprives China of agency. A part of this argument, and you know, I, I, I agree with this, is the idea that the U.S. taking a softer line on China empowers reformers. Um, from my perch in Beijing from 1995 until 2015 and immersing myself in uh, Chinese news every day since then, if, to me, the last reformer who actually had any power was Zhu Rongji. And since Zhu and Zhang's retirement, uh, the only type of Chinese leader that has gained any power has been in the mold of Bo Xilai and Xi Jinping, uh, no matter what America did. Um, so, well, what, what about Wu Jiabao? Well, I mean, that was a caretaker administration. They let things slide, and as soon as things got a little dangerous, they clamped down. Um, you know, I remember the Wenming Banwang campaign against bloggers in 2006. It was a early incarnation of later crackdowns on, on Weibo. I mean, there was no institutional reform that happened during that period. They just right, but, but, kicked but, everything down the can, uh, kicked the can down the road. But for the five years before, they had allowed this almost unfettered expansion of of the public sphere, especially online. They had just... They had tolerated it, but they didn't, uh, you know, right. it wasn't by planning. I mean, I a, it wasn't an actual reform. It was It was uh, what happened because of economic growth and the internet. I think there was quite a deliberate policy undertaken to allow it. Kaiser, we'll have to agree to disagree right, we'll on this one. Time. Let's, sure, sure, let's sure. let Michael <laughs> respond. Yeah, yeah. So what, what, do, you, what do you say about this, this, this uh, empowerment of reformers bit? Well, I think it's, I mean, we really have to define our terms, what we mean by reformers. Um, if, if, if you think that the argument means uh, there are people in the Chinese Communist Party who really think the Communist Party shouldn't be leading China and there should be some kind of pluralist, liberal political system, you're not going to find many reformers in the Communist not. Party at the senior levels. I think it really has more to do with what are the kinds of policies internationally and domestically that would best advance China's interests. And here you've got a policy from Xi Jinping which is, frankly, more hardline, more Leninist, if you will, than has his predecessors have been. Absolutely. Um, he's more dependent on party controls. He's more dependent on ideology. He's using more, I think, uh, repressive means domestically in particular. And I don't think everybody, in, I don't think everybody, even everybody in the leadership necessarily believes that this is all correct. I mean, they're going along with it. 
uh, in part because they owe things to Xi Jinping or because they don't have an easy alternative to it or because they're concerned about the problems that uh, rapid development is creating within China and so they're willing to condone it. But, you know, it's, it's, I think it's, it's naive to assume that there is not differences of, that there are not differences of opinion about how China should move forward in trying to conduct uh, development, growth, et cetera, while trying to carry out something in some way, meaning reform, meaning in order to try to engage more directly with the outside world through the market mechanism, through other m- political means, et cetera, that would advance China's interests. I mean, it's, I think it's fundamental that, that there are differences and debates that go on within the Chinese system. Under Xi Jinping today, they are certainly less common, I think, and they're certainly less evident. But that's not to say that they're, that they're not there. I mean, I talk with a fair amount of Chinese who are not at the top of the system by any means, but they have some access to the system. And, you know, there, a lot of people come through Washington. Too, they're not happy with right. what they're seeing going on in China today. Now, they're not standing committee members of the Politburo, but I'm not talking necessarily about the next year, the next two years of Xi Jinping's rule. I mean, we got to talk about the longer-term evolution of China here. And on that basis, I think what Xi Jinping is doing today in China really is counterproductive in the, se- in the extent to which he's focusing on ideology and party controls and such. I think ultimately it's going to come back and, and shoot him in the foot because if he wants a truly innovative, truly advanced 21st century economy for China that's really involved in the global economy, he can't do that by p- compartmentalizing and segmenting off whole sectors of society in China. Um, it's just ultimately it's not going to work for China. It's not going to be a, a, an efficient way to try and develop. Right. I mean, when I read that 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 line in the letter about the, uh, emboldening reformers or or about uh, sort of a more bellicose posture on our part, uh, I mean, bringing the 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 hawks in China to the fore, I kind of knew that was going to be a, a red rag in front of certain. Uh, Certain types, I, I sort of anticipated that they were going to do that, and for that reason, I, I might not have included such language. I mean, it, for some reason, it just drives people bonkers. I don't know why. I, I think the jury's still out as to what. I mean, I think that again, defining terms, if you're going to straw man this and say that what what we're talking about is a Gorbachev, of course not. That's that's just sort of ridiculous. But unfortunately, there have been people. Well, even but, Gorbachev himself did not necessarily intend for the CPSU uh, to be overthrown. And, and Michael, you have a little sidestep the question of okay, even if you agree that there are reformers who actually may, in different circumstances, be empowered, whether now or in five years' time, it does the United States posture. Is that all? I mean, how much agency do these people have themselves, no right. matter what the United States does? I mean, I think that's the heart of the question. Well, let me let me get to that. Let me tell you what I think about that. But uh, first, I, I, I got to say, look, it, it may not be the case that this would empower moderates, but it certainly is the case that bellicosity on our part would bring the hardliners to the fore. Uh, so, look, there's this there's this other kind of weirdly widely accepted notion that the, the the Chinese respond only to strength that that the is is the, the phrase I, I again I don't believe that this is well founded I think that it's a very pervasive notion but it seems to me to be one that people derive just from experience you know in dealing individually usually in business settings with Chinese people and they somehow extrapolate it to the entirety of of, of the leadership but anyway back to your question Jeremy I, I actually have no problem at all with the United States taking a, a, a 
pretty hefty amount of credit for recognizing this very simple truth that Beijing does pay very close attention to what we say and what we do in the United States. We have an outsized role in shaping China and Chinese behavior. I think that the, the argument that, that Pomfret advances and other people I've seen advance is just this, this falsely modest one. And by the way, it's one that I think is kind of disingenuous because these same people who are all about the big swinging dick of American policy are suddenly really worried about infringing on Chinese agency. Oh, come on. I mean, that's that to me is just kind of ridiculous. But I, okay. I think it's I, I think you, I think you've uh, <laughs> reduced the view to a cartoon, but go on. Okay, anyway, I, I think we need to embrace the idea that most Americans want to see a China that is more open, that is more deliberative, that is more tolerant, that's more participatory. And we shouldn't be shy about, about that fact. We just need to calibrate our interactions uh, with at both the, you know, the state to state and at the individual level in such a way that, that our, our, our counterparts there you know, don't think that we're trying to undermine them. But you know, we have values, right? And if we don't, I mean, Christ, I, I, I don't believe that our, our negotiations should simply be, uh, f- f- you know, pure realpolitik. That's just, that's absurd. Values matter. I mean, it, it's interesting. When I, I've talked to several Chinese about this whole question about how the Chinese at the senior levels look at the United States now, and, and particularly the turn towards this more hardline view in the Trump administration. And I mean, I'm often told that, I mean, there are, there are different, different views on this, and that the Xi Jinping view as best as people can discern it, is not really on the one extreme. I mean, there is an extreme view that says exactly what you just suggested, Kaiser, which is, what have we told you all along? The United States has always wanted to contain China, and it's it's insecure about its own position internationally, and so now we're seeing the manifestation of this. Right. The Trump administration is the clearest, simplest, so it's a confirmation. So we need to really, really address the United States as this kind of you know categorical zero-sum adversary, et cetera. And they've always wanted to contain us, so they're going to try and undermine us, even if we're not communists, they'll try and undermine us, because right. they can't have another power that can challenge them. Uh, and then there's a point of view that's on the other extreme, which is basically that, uh, you know, we need to, yes, the United States is doing all kinds of extreme things, and uh, we can't be taken advantage of, et cetera, et cetera, but we need to also reflect on what we've been saying and doing, and that we're not entirely blameless in some of the ways we manage some issues from the South China Sea to uh, perhaps Taiwan, some trade issues, et cetera. And we need to be more cognizant of this. It's not just the United States. There's a lot of countries around the world that are concerned by what China's doing. And that's a so, viewpoint that actually gets out into the press once in a while, that's too. That's a viewpoint, yeah. but it, I wouldn't say it's anything approaching a majority viewpoint. It's no. a minority viewpoint. And then there's the middle ground, of a, of a, and that's a very big middle ground uh, in China, which I would say is probably... Xi Jinping may actually be in that middle ground, not in terms of domestic toward, toward policy, one end of it, but in terms of foreign policy. Right. Uh, that is to say, he he recognizes, or I think he thinks that, you know, China can't get out of the world; it can't unintegrate from the world. It's got to keep on trying to d- work with the world, and there are and there are very concrete reasons why the United States and China, even though they may not like each other in terms of values and such, they have to cooperate. And so, if you you know, if if you recognize that fact that there are still things that uh, that, that the United States and China must deal with, and the United States is, must face this as well. So it's a certain reality that both sides must face. I was also told, very interestingly, that the Chinese leadership were kind of taken aback by the really rapidity and the extremity of the shift in the Trump administration against oh, yeah. China, that they didn't quite expect 
they didn't really expect it. They didn't see it coming. I, no, I've heard that too from multiple. Yeah, yeah. Have you heard that too? Oh, absolutely. Because because they they really were and and, and I so I asked a, a good friend of mine who's who's Chinese and who's often spoken to the government. How do you explain this? I mean, it's sort of like all over the media. And he said, well, you know, in, within China, I mean, the line is everything's got to be happy talk. I mean, everything's got to be very basically positive. Xi Jinping's line is succeeding. His policy is succeeding. And so, you know, this kind of contrary meme is, is sort of suggests, well, it's not really succeeding. I mean, it's really provoking a lot of a lot of adverse reactions. And so there is a sort of sense to sort of maybe live in a bubble. And 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 so as a result, uh, Xi Jinping apparently, at least according to this one person, said, I want to understand what's going on here. I want to understand what the origins of this thing is. Uh, how durable is it? You know, people say it's bipartisan, et cetera, et cetera. So there are a lot of Chinese now who are kind of sort of fanning out, talking with war- Westerners, for Americans in the U.S. and elsewhere. And, and a lot of Americans are being invited to come to China. And I think it's all part of this effort to sort of work through and say, okay, what exactly is driving this and how deep-rooted is it? And how should we respond to it? And I think that, that that has sort of begun a kind of discussion within China about how to deal with this. The Chinese haven't published a white defense white paper, by the way, since 2015, and they usually do it more frequently. And it could very well be in part because they're trying to sit back and say exactly what are we dealing with here. Support for this week's show comes from Brattle Street Educational Counseling. Stressed out about college applications, Brattle Street Educational Counseling can help. They provide guidance throughout the whole process and offer workshops for students looking to work in small groups at a rigorous pace. The workshops include hours of one-on-one attention. From college essays to standardized test prep to interviewing and applications, Brattle Street offers support for any student. Brattle Street, B-R-A-T-T-L-E Street dot com. Helping you get where you want to go. So, Michael, I had a conversation recently with a friend of mine who's a pretty astute observer uh, of U.S.-China affairs who said that uh, part of the problem, the way he sees it, maybe even the very nub of the problem, is that uh, from our side, anyway, the, the U.S. government, whether the State Department or whether the White House, just hasn't articulated explicitly what its goals are vis-a-vis China, not in any administration in, in the four decades since normalization. Uh, what he's saying is that you know this this failure to do so has really hurt the side of engagement uh, that has you know despite its long ascendancy. Uh, it's it's sort of left us vulnerable to these arguments that in, would involve what I would call a straw man, you know, caricature of the engagement position. You know that we somehow believe that overnight China was going to transform into a, a, a liberal democracy with a full market economy. So I mean, I pushed back though. I, I suggested that that maybe we shouldn't be so explicit. That that. that not being explicit leaves a little bit of room for diplomacy, but also anyone paying attention can infer what it is that the U.S. wanted, and maybe it's best expressed in you know that formulation by by Robert Zellick, you know the responsible stakeholder that we basically want to you know if I had to spell it out uh, that that we want to draw China deeply into this whole web of interconnectedness, so that uh, because of all these interdependencies. It's it's both unable and unwilling to to be a disruptive actor. It's going to buy into this post-war rules-based international order, or whatever we're calling it. Uh, no military expansion, no revanchism, no no you know uh, irredentism, no exporting radical ideology. And to that extent, I mean, it's been pretty good, right? Uh, 
Yeah, but the problem, I mean, what I think is going on with the, with the Trump administration, in fact, with, with many in Washington now, is that there is a fundamental rejection of that whole idea. And it, it was kind of encapsulated by the recent piece that was written by Kurt Campbell and Eli Ratt there. Right. You know, the basic argument, and I think it's been picked up by a lot of, a lot of people, is that engagement, uh, trying to do the things you just mentioned, Kaiser, et cetera, has failed. It simply failed. China has not uh, evolved and developed in the way in which it needed to. For, to, uh, to meet U.S. interests. And so U.S. policy, past U.S. policy, has generally been a failure. And therefore, we need to develop a new policy. And the Trump administration is kind of put out there as its new policy, essentially a one-dimensional policy. It's, it's, it's a policy purely of, competitive. Yeah, it's right. a policy of, of, well, they call it competition, but it's far more than that. Right, right. It's really, it's really a, a deeply adversarial policy in many ways, although I'm not sure that Trump himself shares every element of that. It's really kind of weird when you hear Trump talk about his relationship with Xi Jinping and how the two countries are going to get along just great as soon as they have their make their great deal. Um, his, you know, his view about China seems to be very, very contradictory in a lot of ways. Oh, I mean, he's, um, he's got Bolton around him. He's yeah, got then, Bannon but then he has the people wings. below yeah. him. Right. And, you know, and you, when you look at the national defense strategy, national security strategy that both came out in 2017, 2018 by the administration, I mean, it's very clear yeah, there yeah, what is yeah. going on. And that is, I think, uh, an effort to say, OK, things have failed. We're dealing with a revisionist global power that wants to supplant the world order and dominate the world. And it, along with Russia and now probably Iran, they throw Iran in there. And now we have to develop a strategy for dealing with this. And that's the sort of free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, which is really not a strategy at all. It's just a slogan uh, that talks about a set of objectives that it would like to see. The Japanese haven't signed on to the U.S. version now. They've backed away from it. The Indians haven't signed on to the U.S. version now. They've backed away from it. The Australians, I think, want to keep on everybody's side, so right. they're not saying much. But it's, you know, it's, it's, it's just not a strategy. And, the one-legged and, quad. Yeah, and, and so you've got this kind of impulse. You've got an impulse that's attached to a bunch of formulations or interpretations of what China is, which is in many ways based upon, I think, you know, argument and not based upon data. It's just based upon views taken to an extreme. Uh, some of it has elements of truth in it. Some of it is just way beyond anything you can find if you go out there and try and look at the reality of the situation, like the concept of debt trap diplomacy. I right. mean, it's... Well, it's I just, mean, I, I, I certainly agree with what you've said, and, and it characterizes the, the Trump administration. But what I was really asking was sort of in a beyond Trump uh, sense, should we be, uh, what should we be saying in terms of an articulation of what we want from China? Well, I think what we should be saying is <clears throat> we want from China uh, a country uh, with whom we can engage on issues that are vital to both countries and the world, um, that there are, uh, we want a China whose interests are going to be supportive of continued um, global economic growth and development. And then you try to define, you know, what are the requirements for that? Um, and we want a China that is not bellicose and is not going to be intimidating through military arms, its neighbors, uh, that's not going to be trying to dominate in some untoward ways uh, the countries around it, um, and that it needs to work with other parts of the international order in order to establish a more common approach to dealing with these security issues, economic issues, etc. I mean, I have long argued that in Asia, which is where the major security concern is, really, China does not pose a global 
national hard security threat. It poses primarily an Asia threat. A regional threat. A regional threat because of the growth of its military, because much of its military is oriented towards nullifying or neutralizing the ability of the United States to dominate the maritime space off its borders. Right. So because of that, you've got a basic contradiction. The United States thinks that order in the Western Pacific is best guaranteed by American predominance. The Chinese essentially reject that. They think there can be something other than that. Would you extend this into the domestic realm? Would you would you also say that it should be part of American policy to want the China that signs on to international norms about human rights, about uh, with its ethnic policy, uh, about religious persecution, about you know torture, about jailing? Oh sure. I mean, I think I think that certainly would be if you can bring that in line with the vast bulk of the Ameri- of the global community. I mean, there was a whole lot of countries that just signed on to Xinjiang's Xin- repression of these ethnic. Minorities, the including, axis of amoral, including yeah. Saudi Arabia, I think the Philippines, Pakistan. North Korea, that yeah. I mean, anytime you find yourself on a you know, list, give with me North a break. Korea, so you've got the global part. I shouldn't say the global community, but you got part of the global community that's kind of endorsing this stuff in Xinjiang. Oh, yeah. So it's kind of hard to say the global community because they are really very divided about questions of human rights and political rights. But nonetheless, I think the United States and other Western democracies need to keep pressing China on this, and and trying to do. So through a collective action, of course, this is all anathema to the Trump administration because they don't really care about collective action. That's right. That's they right. care about unilateral deal making. Right. Um, it strikes me, a question for both of you, Kaiser and Michael, that um, there are two types of people who tend to have received this letter with less enthusiasm, I think. And I think on the one hand, there's a bit of a generational divide. Um when it comes to U.S. policy towards China and people in their 40s older, kind of Gen Gen X and boomers, people who started coming to China 80s and 90s are much more willing to cut China slack. And of course, many of them are embedded in the establishment, so they have an interest in the status quo. But younger people who have come later and are closer to the ground have just seen growing repression. I also think that Anyone who's done business practically, you know, not sitting in some far off boardroom, but if you've actually run a company in China, um, you feel somewhat different about some of these questions. Like you, the two of you were just discussing these very high level policy questions. But for a lot of people, I think it comes down to reciprocity. We've seen our businesses harassed. We've seen our friends, NGOs shut down. And Kaiser, you say this is just individual stories. But in, in the aggregate, there are so many of these stories. Um, that there is a very real groundswell of frustration. And I think it's among younger China watchers, and I think it's amongst the business community who in some ways, I believe, started, uh, really started the current wave of uh, hostility to, to, to China. But do you think there is a, a generation divide? And do you think there is a divide between people who've been doing business and others? Let what? me first say before, I mean, I, I don't mean to be dismissive of, of the experiences of these people. Uh, and yeah, you're right. In the aggregate, they do amount to something. I just what I what I am worried about is individuals taking their own anecdotes and then extrapolating them of their own without sort of data support. So that, that there's a difference there. Anyway, please, let me, Michael, let go me on. Just, I mean, you know, I take your point, Jeremy. I think there there is to some extent a generational difference among people, young people who have been spending a lot of time on the ground in China in recent years haven't seen the larger arc of development in China, although it's not unmitigated. I mean, it's not one-dimensional. I know young people um, who are China scholars who do not at all hold <clears throat> this more absolutely, hard Absolutely, absolutely. I, I would never I claim mean, to speak for all young people, or to be, claim yeah, to I mean, be I young for that diverse. matter. 
Right. <laughs> I think it's I think it's diverse, but but it probably it might lean a little bit more in the direction of the younger people who have been on the ground in China because they see a lot of the repression firsthand, um, and that's an issue. And you know, it's a concern the United States and other countries should have, and they do, I think. But it's not something that should necessarily define policy per se, where you're dealing with national interests and you've got to sometimes deal with countries that are not the best and certainly distasteful in some ways. And that's the sort of point that you can't contain and isolate. China is not like the Soviet Union in the 1950s or 60s. It's a much, much more integrated power. It's a much more sophisticated power. In many ways, it's a more open power than the Soviet Union ever was. But it does have a lot of problems, and particularly right now, it's got a lot of problems that it's carrying out as a result of some of Xi Jinping's policies. Let me just say a word about the business and one other group, military. I was personally a little disappointed because you don't, we didn't have as many business and military people who signed on to this letter. And it wasn't for lack of trying. Um, the business people in general are very, very, very cautious about signing on to any kind of thing like an open letter. Um, it exposes them to uh, criticisms, uh, including from the Trump administration, and they're trying to deal with the Trump administration to get the Trump administration to be more rational in their approach to their economic issues. Um, there are lots of business organizations, I think, well, I shouldn't say lots, but there are business organizations that are really concerned with the way the Trump administration is going with the tariff wars and the sledgehammer approach. Yes, they have concerns about China, but they don't think that they're being dealt with in the most effective way by the administration. Nonetheless, business interests, I think, really are cautious about signing on. They, have, they cite a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders, which means they need to be prudent. They need to be cautious in how they engage uh, with the outside world. And so for them, this is like too much of a kind of partisan or risk-taking kind of a thing. So even though quite a few agreed with most, if not all, of what's in the letter, they just said, I can't sign it. I'm not going to sign it. Right. Military people, slightly different issue, I think. Now, I can't speak for all the military people, and it wasn't like a huge number. But you know, I've known quite a few military people over the years in part of my work. And a lot of them were sympathetic, but a lot of them also were uneasy about signing something that seemed to be critical of the national defense strategy, which is a United States government national document. Even though, you know, they're retired, um, I think they felt like, you know, I don't want to be seen as kind of like going against my government, even though they may not be very sympathetic, if you see what I mean. I mean, it's sort of like a sense of patriotism there that they they felt they might be seen as uh, violating in some way. And then there were others who simply said, and I think this was maybe even most of the people, military, said, I just don't sign these kind of things, open letters like this. And, and that was true of other people as well who were sympathetic to it. Uh, but they just said, I don't, I don't sign these things. There is that tradition of, of the services trying to be apolitical. I mean, a good example is Ryan Haas at Brookings. Ryan is very, very sympathetic with the open letter, but he didn't sign it. Uh, and okay. and he just doesn't he says in principle he just doesn't believe in signing these open letters and you know that's his view and I respect it I respect it a lot okay but I know he you know he just he supports the letter oh he sure does I mean if you uh, listen to the show that we did with him it's you know, now let let's talk about someone who would not support the letter I, I guess um, you've both read the FT editorial by Janos Konai who is widely recognized as one of the economists who was most influential in setting China down the path of economic liberalization. Uh, He was particularly harsh. He talked about creating a monster in the manner of Mary Shelley's uh, Dr. Frankenstein's monster. He goes so far as to compare Xi Jinping to Stalin. 
Um, what did you make of that? And connected to it, um, if you don't believe China is a monster and the letter is t- titled China is not an enemy, how should we think of China? I mean, is Stephen Colbert's uh, frenemy, is that the best description? How would you define the relationship? <laughs> Well, I think it's a relationship that is very hard to pigeonhole in one phrase. I mean, really, I'm not trying to sort of dodge your question, Jeremy, but I really don't like labels like this. Um, China is, in many ways, a unique power. The United States has never dealt with a power like this. Um, it has a, it has huge impact on the international stage. Um, it, it does things that are, in fact, in American interests, but it does a lot of things that aren't in American or Western interests. So it's a complex, it's a complex issue. So how do you deal with it? You have to deal with it through a combination of different policies that are based upon a realistic assessment, as we said in the last proposition of the open letter, a realistic assessment of what your aspirations are and your resources are that you're capable of dealing with, a realistic assessment of what the Chinese are and what they want that's based on, to best you can develop it, a sense of fact data. So what my view would be, would be a form, certainly a form of engagement. We certainly have to continue with a policy of engagement with China that recognizes where we need to cooperate with them and develop that as best as we can while competing with the Chinese and, in some cases, deterring them. Now, that sounds like the old policy, but you know the, the basic principles, underlying logic principles of that old policy, I think, are still valid. Would you implement elements of that policy today in the same exact way as the Obama administration did or the Bush administration? Probably not in some ways. Now, in some regards, I would say we need to implement policies that are more based upon the idea of mutual accommodation, particularly in the Western Pacific. And I stress the word mutual. Now, that's the problem with many people. They believe there's no such thing as mutual accommodation with the Chinese because the Chinese will take what you give and they will pocket it and they will give you absolutely nothing in return. I think the historical record does not support that. When I wrote a book called America's Challenge several years ago, I interviewed 50 50 policymakers who had negotiated and dealt with the Chinese. And the common theme among many of them was the Chinese will behave based upon their national interests. Now, what are their national interests? Believe it or not, in every case, they are not set in stone. Their national interests can be influenced by what the United States and other countries do. So you have an opportunity to engage the Chinese and get them to do things that you would want to have them do, and they might recognize that they want to do. So it's leaving open that possibility that I think is essential in American policy, in which the Trump administration virtually I should say almost entirely ignores. In the 90s through the 2000s, China settled a quite a number of its of its existing border claims uh, with a number of it, again it borders 14 countries, which is the most of any country in the world except for the Soviet Union or the or Russia now. Uh, but it settled the majority of those, I think more than 70% of them, favorably to the counterparty. So I, I just don't, I don't buy that that idea. Uh, Jeremy, going back to your question, though, I mean, you, you did bring up that, that Janusz Kornai thing. That, that, that essay, I mean, it was very disturbing, of course, because, well, because of, of who he was and, and his, his role in setting China down the course of reform and opening. I, I think it's, it's interesting that maybe he's gone beyond demonization. It's no longer, it's a monstrification. I think it's, we're talking about the monstrification of China, which is even more disturbing. Uh, that's funny because the same people who now, now we're not going to claim agency again. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's interesting. I, I don't. I don't. I'm not familiar with the with the article, Jeremy. I'm sorry, but 
it's interesting to listen to what he says based on your summary of it and then look at what the World Bank has said, which is that since 2008, one-third of global growth has been due to China. One-third of global growth. Now, is that a predatory economy? I mean, there obviously it's fundamentally that, – that viewpoint is just fundamentally flawed because it is too simplistic. And if you just assume the Chinese are this economic juggernaut out to suppress everybody, it just is not supported by the facts, which is not, which is not to say that the Chinese are not misbehaving. And that's what people automatically do. Because I say what I just said, people jump to the opposite extreme and say, oh, you're excusing the Chinese in every case, which I'm not doing. It's easy for people to, to make a caricature out of what you said. You know, I mean, you've got a pretty active presence there on Twitter, and you don't always, you're not always restrained. Anyway, uh, uh, Jeremy, well, you I'm asked about... to be restrained. I mean, come on, Kaiser. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. I, I, I'm polite. I don't engage in ad hominem attacks. Right. Uh, Jeremy, you asked about uh, what we call it now, but whatever we call it, I mean, I think most people have come to accept that the, the competitive dimensions of the relationship are, are going to be more prominent uh, than the collaborative dimensions. I think uh, neither you nor I nor Michael want to see the collaborative element completely eclipsed by competition. Uh, but but competition can be taken too far, obviously. Uh, what are some of the guardrails, Michael, that we should be thinking about putting in place to keep inevitable competition from going off the rails, as it were. Well, I think some of the guardrails have to do with um, recognizing common common limits on how far you go in certain directions with certain policies. For example, security policy. I mean, I believe that in, in, in the Western Pacific, um, the guardrails have to do with um, non-use of force statements, particularly in the South China Sea. You know, the Chinese say, oh, well, we signed this declaration of conduct way back when, where everybody says they need to exercise restraint and non-use of force. I say, yeah, sure, but that's being violated at every turn, um, not necessarily with shooting kinetic sort of action, but, but efforts to try and stop people from doing things. And the Chinese are as active in this, if not more than the Vietnamese and, and others are. But there needs to be some kind of a explicit affirmation of a uh, refusal to use force to displace anybody from their occupied areas in the South China Sea, um, and you know a real commitment to try to establish a, a set of guidelines there. And this shouldn't be led by the United States necessarily, but I think it needs to involve the United States because the United States is the biggest concern for the Chinese, I think, in the South China Sea. But that's just one example. In, in other areas, I think there has to be a uh, guidelines that are established in, multilaterally, for example, at WTO. I, th- I, I am a supporter of going back and revising the WTO and making it more modern, more up-to-date, to be able to in- include a lot of these high-tech and other areas that are just not very well addressed by the WTO. I mean, there are bases for you know argument and interpretation in the WTO, and I think it's too vague in some ways. And I think they need to have better means to define what are violations of of trade and to enforce them, or at least to point them out. Um, And the process is way too slow for doing this. Uh, Michael, there was another letter uh, written, uh, I think, by Kimo Fanel, who is part of the Committee on Present Danger, China, Frank Gaffney's organization, which uh, Steve Bannon is also deeply involved in. Did you read that letter and what's your take on it? Uh, no, I didn't. You want, you want to give me a you want to give me a brief summary, Jeremy? You know? Well, I I mean, I'll tell you, it was great. I mean, it starts off just saying, you know, President Trump, we were inspired by your Fourth of July uh, patriotism and by your military parade, and now we want. Yeah. Anyway, it was yeah, 
Michael, for the record, is making gagging. Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I love it. I love. It. Anyway, I, I thought the letter was great. It was, it was so over the top that it's going to push some fence sitters into the sensible camp. Well, do you guys know that there's apparently a counter letter in the works? That's the one. That's that's the one I'm talking about. Oh, the it, letter, where yeah. did it appear? Uh, it's it's out there. I can give. Was you Was it link. explicitly a counter letter to the? Oh letter? yeah, yeah, very much. Oh okay, yeah, I want to see that. That's yeah, great. Yeah. No, I'm sorry, I haven't seen it yet. I was waiting for it to happen. <laughs> I'll show it to you. And it's great. I'm. I think that's great. That's that's wonderful because I mean the point has been made. There is no consensus, folks. Right. I mean that that and that was going to be what I was going to wrap up. If you're you're in in DC here. Is is there there's no consensus? You think that I mean, is this something you glean from having traveled outside of DC? Because that's what most of the people I talk to tell me that yeah, when they talk to state governments, when they talk to mayors, when they talk to uh, that's where they're hearing a lot of pushback on this. When they talk to Silicon Valley companies, oh yeah, that's that's a really important point, Kaiser. I mean, it's not just in the United States, in Washington. I think there are differences of opinion, not so much within the Trump administration or on on the Hill apparently, but. As I've said, the signers of the letter show these people are all very active, um, very deeply involved and well-regarded people in international relations, foreign policy, China policy, etc. And they don't agree with this dominant Trump administration approach. But I think equally, if not more important, the U.S. public itself doesn't seem to buy into this kind of unvarnished demonization. When you look at polling in the American public, they express the greatest concern about China as an economic adversary. Right. And so they're concerned about economic competition, even though I think a lot of Americans recognize that most of the stuff they buy at pretty low prices at Walmart is made in China. But at the same time, I think Americans also are not as convinced that China is a national security threat of the size and the and the way that the United States that the Trump administration currently defines it. And so I and several other people want to really take the open letter on the road. In, in essence, we want to we want to go on a, a tour, a town hall tour of different cities in the United States talking about the open letter and getting the views of Americans uh, on the open letter and seeing what they think about about China policy. So if there's anybody out there who has lots of money and they want to support us, get in touch with me. <laughs> well, I don't have lots of money, but you have my warm body if you need it. <laughs> Michael Swain, thank you so much for taking the time. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Uh, let's move on to the recommendation segment of the show. But first, let me remind listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. Take a moment and subscribe to SupChina Access to start getting the daily newsletter written by our colleague Jeremy, delivered right to your inbox. Jeremy and his great team. Uh, membership gets you an early version of this podcast, usually on Monday evenings. U.S. East Coast time instead of on Thursday evenings, uh, plus discounts to our conferences, free admission to our live shows, and of course, a berth aboard our Slack channel where you can harangue Jeremy and myself uh, and also take part in, in live chats with our frequent guests. So do sign up, show your support. Okay, on to recommendations. Jeremy, uh, what do you have for us this week? Okay, my f- two part recommendation. The first is to people who haven't actually read, read the letter, please read the letter because judging from some of the online uh, response to it, uh, it seemed pretty knee-jerk and the letter is, you know, even though I don't, I, I won't sign it I and I have my issues with it, it's very thoughtful and um, I am definitely in the engagement camp. But my second recommendation is to Michael, you and your roadshow. I do think people in favor of engagement have to find a better way to respond to some of the concerns uh, from people who you may completely disagree with, because a lot of it is perspective. I mean, you mentioned the Americans getting the benefits of 
cheap stuff at Walmart. But I know in my local Nashville Walmart, you know, I've heard overheard more than once people say complain about cheap crap from China and why don't we make anything in the United States anymore? You know, these I mean, that may be a caricature of a view, but these are real views and uh, we have to actually uh, engage with those views, too, not just with the Communist Party. Oh, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I mean, and this is for all of us coastal elites. You know, I think we we need to know how to talk to middle America better. We're just so not only middle America, but the pissed off young entrepreneur in Beijing who's really mad because he got urine tested by the cops last night. You know, that guy isn't very receptive to being nice to China right now either. And and those points of view are, you know, whether you think they're valid or not, they are making up the uh, co- the context and the environment in which all of this debate is happening. Uh, very good. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that was more of a little little preachy session than a recommendation. <laughs> okay. A departure from our usual kind of fun and frivolous recommendations, but don't you have some bird app you want to recommend or something like that? Yeah, yeah, the anyway. bird ID app and the tree ID app. I'll, I'll recommend those anytime. <laughs> okay. All right, Michael, what do you have for us this week? What do I have for you? Recommendation. Um... Well, totally unrelated to China, I'm a very much of an art buff, particularly paintings, and uh, I recommend you all turn out to the National Gallery in Washington and go and see the current exhibit, which is on the pre-Raphaelites in the United States. They're oh, mainly wow. associated with English painters, but there were a lot of American pre-Raphaelite, pre-Raphaelite painters as well, and I haven't gone there yet, but I'm hoping to get there. It's going to stop on July, I think, the 21st, so go out and look at art. Oh, that's a great recommendation. Uh, I haven't been to the National Gallery in a long time. I need to get out there. Uh, I've got an artsy recommendation as well. It's the music of Anais Mitchell. Uh, she wrote the, the music for the multi-Tony Award-winning musical Town, which is on Broadway right now, uh, which I am seeing this week for the second time. Anais Mitchell is a singer-songwriter who, who does modern folk. Uh, she's basically everything you want in a modern folk performer, just achingly beautiful lyrics, a lovely, really versatile voice, uh, just terrific arrangements. She's a very good guitar player herself. Uh, if you are in New York, do not miss Town, which is a retelling of Orpheus and Eurydice, uh, sort of set in a Great Depression, kind of New Orleans-ish place. Uh, it was nominated, I think, for 14 Tonys, and it won eight, including Best Musical which is uh, I, some kind of a record. Anyway, full disclosure, my brother was one of the producers of the show. I'm taking my son to see it. I'm, I'm seeing it for the second time. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's so edifying. You, you come away just thinking, oh, they've just raised the bar on, on what you can do with musical theater. Anyway, do see it. Michael, thank you once again for joining us. We really look forward to speaking to you again. Oh, well, great. I really enjoyed it. Thanks. Jeremy, man, always great. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Kaiser. And... Um, Thank you for being so civil, even with your disagreements. It was, uh, <laughs> I was a little worried. <laughs> you dog. Yes. Well, <laughs> forward. I'll look to continue. Okay. All right, guys. <laughs> Bye-bye. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo, that's me, and Jeremy Goldcorn, that's him, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at SubChina News, and make sure to check out our other podcasts, the Session Seneca Business Brief, the Pandaily Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, our two shows focused on women, new voices, and tafata, and, of course, the Middle Earth Podcast on the culture industry in China. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next week. Take care.